Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from cloudy and cool Portland. We also have Dan Shapir. Hi from sunny Tel Aviv. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Adam Bradley. Adam, thank you for having a name, I can say, and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And I should say, I'm from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, nice. I have a brother that lived out there for a while, and he loved it. So do you want to give us just a brief introduction, who you are, sure. kind of where you've been, what you do, why you're famous? Sure, yeah, absolutely. I don't know about famous, but uh, absolutely. So previously, I worked at Ionic, so I helped create the Ionic framework, um, which mm-hmm. is a mobile UI interface builder for different uh, web applications. And through that, Good guys over there, Max and Mike, we've had them absolutely the Mac, Mike, Ben. Yeah, so I was an employee number three there. So oh, I had wow. a lot of a lot, a lot of fun helping to create that. And in doing that, we created uh, Stencil, which is actually what powers Ionic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was framework that's uh, using web components to create each of the, the leaf components for Ionic, so that we can then have Ionic fit inside of any single uh, framework, React, Angular, what have you. And so that went really, really well. Really enjoyed uh, working on that stuff. And today I'm at Builder.io I'm working on Quick and Party Talk. Very cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So yeah, we've got you on to talk about Party Town. And I kind of like to start at the high level, like what it does. But can you also do that in a way that kind of explains to people why they would want to use it? Sure. Yeah, so with today's websites, there's, well, there, any website, there's a performance issue of the more JavaScript you add, the slower the page is going to be. And so there's no shortage of uh, documentation explaining to people what they should do, how to make their websites faster, how to optimize your bundles, how to lazy load components. You know, so there's all this information on what you do to your code to help speed up your application. So let's say that we did every single recommendation we do everything possible and we get our, our own React app working as fast as possible. Let's say it scores 100 out of 100 locally. Then we de- deploy it. The real problem hits when the real world starts adding analytics to your, uh, or basically third-party scripts to your website. So let's say that you do have the fastest website possible. You don't have a JavaScript problem. Once you start adding all these different third-party scripts, which I believe the average is at least 20 third-party scripts, there's a HTTP archive uh, stat showing that like the median is to have oh, wow. 20 third-party scripts on a web page. As you keep adding these, that's what's really slowing down your site. And so any e-commerce site, again, that could be a, a very fast website just with what you built on your machine. As different departments are adding more and more scripts, that's really, really slowing down your site. And I think a, a lot of developers have experienced this. They've seen that like, hey, I was scoring great. What happened to my performance of this site? And that's what, oh, it's the 20, 30 different scripts that are each, you know, 30 
300 kilobytes, you've got almost three megabytes of someone else's JavaScript running on your main thread, eating up all the resources. They're not synced up together. They're all fighting for um, paint into the window. They're all actually, I've seen quite a bit of them having like a set interval that's reading the DOM. And so all this junk is being added to your site because you gave it access to do that. And so that's kind of the the big uh, the problem that we're at right now. I'm thinking that the stage of this era of web development is that we we give all of these scripts access to the main thread, the same one that you're trying to share, but we have zero control of what they do and how they do it. It's just kind of a free-for-all and they can eat up as many resources as you want, which is what your app should be using rather than theirs. I think it's worthwhile to clarify or even define exactly what is meant by third-party scripts. I assume that most of our listeners do know what it is, but you know, maybe a few do not. So it's important to stress that third-party scripts are scripts that you inject into your website, but are provided by, from a different domain, and it's a domain that's not controlled by you. So it's not your scripts. It might be, and a good example is our Google Analytics, Google Tag Manager, the Facebook stuff, and, and there are so many more, something from Twitter or something. Yeah, just the list goes on, goes on and on. And it's important to note that these are not like scripts from uh, like external libraries that you may, you might incorporate via NPM into your code. Those are bundled into your code and they're effectively first party scripts, even if you didn't write them. Third party scripts are wholly controlled by, by someone else. So, so I think that's an important point to make. And, and another point I think that's important is kind of what I consider to be a certain deficiency, perhaps, of the entire web platform, that you literally have no control over what these scripts can do within the context of your own web page. That means that once you have a script tag within your HTML that brings down a script, that script can effectively do within your web page anything that your scripts can do within that web page. It has like total freedom and you can't really limit what, what it decides to do. If it wants to like consume your, all your memory, all your CPU, modify the DOM in whichever which way, well, it can do all that stuff. And, and it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great clarification. And yeah, it comes down to like, you did give access to this script to run on your on your users' machines. And so they can do whatever they want. If you add one third-party script, you probably not see the problem. Like if you add only Google Analytics, there's a slight, you know, dent in your performance. It's the problem of adding 20 or 30. That's where it really comes in. And then they're all, again, they're not synced. They're all kind of doing their own thing. They all want to, you know, make their service be the best one. So they're doing as many uh, DOM reads as they need to do. And basically, it's, it just turns into this big, you know, cat fight on the, on the main thread of yeah. resources. Um, meanwhile, you have an application you're trying to get people to use. Right. I remember I used to, probably about 10 years ago, I was working for a, a large nonprofit and running four different sites. And these happen to be Drupal sites. And the bane of my existence <laughs> was ad scripts that we had to have in. We yeah. had to have a 30 script for running ads on the websites because that was a large part of how the organization made money and got income as a nonprofit. And I can remember, you know, getting questions about performance and I would basically take all the scripts out and just run the site by itself. And it was so fast. Yep. And then as soon as we started running third-party scripts, everything just slowed down to a crawl. And I pointed them, I showed examples. Look, here's a, you know, this is running without ads. This is what it is. And they're like, Sorry, we got to have them. And yeah. at that point, you know, we tried everything we could think of, whether it was loading the JavaScript at the end of the page, putting it at the tail end of the page so that it didn't load till everything else was loaded. 
we tried so many things and it was just it took up way too much of my time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Miserable. Well, it's it's interesting because for example, with the Facebook Pixel, just to throw that one out there, right? A lot of tracking is done for the marketing folks and it turns out that you kind of need that in order to, you know, do Facebook ads properly and attribute purchases and things like that. And so a lot of times we kind of look at it and we think the tracking's gross or the the functionality that it provides is gross, but they do provide legitimate business reasons to put them on there. Some of them are like the the intercom chat or things like that in there as well. But yeah, I mean, Google Analytics, you know, I mean, I'm talking about this from the podcast end of things, right? And I'm getting ready to sell courses and stuff like that. And so, you know, if I want to buy Facebook ads, it's nice to have a lot of that data front loaded into the Facebook ads system before I start buying ads. Google Analytics, my sponsors want to know how many times people are going to see their ads. And so it anyway, it is it is exactly what we're talking about. But yeah, it, it does impact the performance and things like that. And that sucks. That's kind of been a, a hard requirement that we have with with Python was that um, it's easy to say like, well, if you want to improve your performance, get rid of the get rid of the analytics, get rid of the third scripts. Duh. Why don't you do that? You know, but like, again, like just what you're saying, the reality is the business makes that decision. The business has reasons. They use all this data to make you know business decisions. And so like um, you can't just say, well, don't remove the third party scripts. Maybe on your personal blog you can. But as far as you know, a large e-commerce site that has millions, billions of dollars dependent on this data, um, you can't just remove it. And so that's kind of uh, the hard requirement with uh, Python was that like we can't say don't use these and we can't alternate change the third party script code. Right. It's given to us from a different server. We can't just decide to, you know, like, well, let's try to improve something or improve its performance somehow. It's like, well, that's not how it can work. It's, you know, a half megabyte of JavaScript, someone else's JavaScript on a different domain. We can't control that. And so between those two things, uh, it kind of made Python uh, a challenge. It was like, well, how do we improve these someone else's scripts on someone else's domain that's running inside of your website? And that's, that's kind of where Python comes in. I want to mention why, uh, two more things. So first of all, yet more examples. Uh, Chuck, you gave some examples of uh, and more. Like, again, if you're using the Facebook pixel, you're probably running campaigns within Facebook. You want to know which campaigns are effective and which aren't. Similarly with... Uh, with Google, you want to know if you're doing uh, SEO campaigns, you know, your pay- or uh, pay-per-click. You want to know what works and what doesn't. And this stuff costs money. You know, the organization mm-hmm. absolutely needs this information. There's literally no way you can go to the marketing department or the MarTech or whatever and tell them, no, you know, I'm removing your scripts. In fact, it's gone the, the other way because... It seems like, you know, the marketing people were so sick and tired of having to argue with the developers all the time about adding the pixels that they needed that they kind of did an end run around us with Google Tag Manager, where mm-hmm. effectively they have this like yeah. meta script, which can download, which can load more scripts. So now they just embed that one third party script, as it were, into the site, but through that script, they can add whatever else they want. And in most cases that I've seen, the developers in the organization don't even know which third-party scripts are being loaded into the website. Moreover, many times these scripts are not loaded during development. So during development, everything seems great. Or even in the staging environment, everything looks wonderful because the scripts aren't even there. And then Mm -hmm. they're loaded in the production environment and you're screwed. Yeah, that's a pretty accurate portrayal of what happens. Again, like 
in development, you can have a extremely fast scoring 100 out of 100 lighthouse, push it live, and then all of a sudden you're scoring a 19, you know, and so that's that's not far-fetched at all. All right, so how do I get Facebook off my lawn then? <laughs> yeah, so really the big trick that Python applies is trying to run all of this code. So again, let's say you got two megabytes of someone else's JavaScript running on the main thread. Um, you want to dedicate the main thread to your code. So to your 100 kilobytes of you know awesome application is just dedicated to the main thread. Well, that three megabytes, let's put into a web worker. Let's put it somewhere else to run. And that's kind of been you know something that's been practical for over a decade now, right? Like since I think IE10, they've had web workers. And so like it's absolutely been practical. How come this hasn't been done earlier? How come people haven't been using uh, web workers much more? And it comes down to, well, the web worker doesn't have access to the DOM or the window. And so the web worker cannot, you cannot do window or document.title is usually my simplest example. Uh, there's no way for the web worker to say, what's the document.title of this web page? Because there's no such thing as the DOM in that environment. It's, in, it's an entirely different world. And so for it to do that, it needs to send a message to the main thread, which is like, hey, main thread, what's the document title? The main thread's like, it's whatever sends it back. And that messaging between the two, that's asynchronous. And that's the that's really the big problem of why this hasn't been done earlier. Because it's asynchronous, because there's this moment in between, there's no callback, no promises, anything like that. All of these scripts don't count on that. All of these scripts are counting on document.title to immediately synchronously respond with a string. And it's not just document.title, it's all of the APIs. It's like, it's expecting to be on the main thread. It's expecting that the moment that they do um, element.get attribute is going to immediately get that that data back. And that's the problem. That's why, because it's someone else's code and someone else's servers, we can't just change how that works. We can't change like, well, let's make this a get title to be asynchronous with the callback because all of a sudden we've changed their three megabytes of code. It's going to break. It's not going to work anymore. And that's the problem. So that's where Python kind of comes in is it's able to run this code the same in a different world into a web worker but the moments that it does need that data synchronously is that it uses this trick to then like post to the main thread to say, hey, give me document.title synchronously. And that's before we before we dive in into how you manage to accomplish this magic, because for me, what you've done is literally black magic. I do want to expand a little bit again for our listeners about web workers. Like like mm-hmm. you said, they're they're nothing new, but unfortunately they're not so wide widely used precisely because of those various restrictions that exist on them, like their inability to directly access the DOM and and the difficulty in moving information between the various workers and the main thread. So as we know, in the past decades, computers aren't really getting faster anymore. And if you're looking at the various mobile devices, and most of the browsing these days is done for mobile devices, the endpoint devices are actually potentially getting slower because people are moving from faster desktops to slower mobile devices. But what these devices are getting are more and more cores. So if you can offload the processing off of the main thread to a different thread, then you're taking advantage of a separate core and you can execute multiple things in parallel effectively without a slowdown. Unfortunately, the browser was created in the days of single cores and it was created primarily as a kind of a single thread thing. Hence the whole concept of the main thread that does so much of the browser's work, running the JavaScript, doing the rendering and and additional stuff. So like you said, the concept of web workers was introduced as a way of offloading JavaScript computation off of the main thread, 
but it precisely suffers from the limitation that you described of no access, no direct access to the DOM. Effectively, if it wants to communicate with the DOM, it needs to send a, an asynchronous message to JavaScript running in the main thread that receives that message, does whatever service it needs for it, and then sends the, the information back also asynchronously. And the, the final thing I want to mention is that another kind of unfortunate, well, both unfortunate and fortunate decision that I think we can attribute to Brendan Eich was that he made both JavaScript and the DOM wholly synchronous. I think it's, it's an, an unfortunate decision on one hand because it kind of, that's not really the way that such systems need to work and it greatly limits how the browser operates. On the other hand, had he made it asynchronous from the get-go, probably would have been too complicated for most web developers to comprehend and potentially the web would never have gotten off the ground. But, but be that as it may, the DOM, like you said, is primarily synchronous. You access a property, you like you read the, the title or you write to the title. And it, in an ideal world, all of these things would have had an await in front of them. But that's not how the web works. And, and like you said, all those third-party scripts were created to run in the main thread. They make direct access to the DOM. It would have been lovely if uh, Facebook, for example, modified their pixel not to work that way, and maybe eventually they will, but currently they don't. And despite this fact, you guys somehow managed to take this code that makes direct synchronous access to the DOM and move it to run in a worker. So what I want to like understand, first of all, is let's say, first of all, how do I do it? Meaning if I already have a, a website that uses third-party scripts, what do I need to do to get uh, Party Town to run on it? And the second thing would be, how do you do it? How do you accomplish this magic? So let's start with what I need to do to get it. Sure. So basically there needs to be a, what I'm called, you know, a party town snippet. Okay. So a little bit of code, just like you'd add like Google tag man or something like that, this little bit of snippet that goes at, at the head of the script or head of your, your document that just kind of has a registry to set it all up. And so that snippet needs to be added to the head. It's synchronous. It's not a, a separate request. It's just a couple bytes of code that's added to the head. And then the next thing is like any script that you want to run inside of a different web worker into a web worker is that each script element has a can have a type attribute. So normally it's you don't have it at all, or it has type, you know, text slash application or type module. And what that does is it tells the browser um, if there's no type attribute at all, it says, you know, execute the script. If you give it something that does, that the browser doesn't recognize, if you give it something like text slash partytown, the browser sees this attribute and the script element. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just going to skip over this. I'm not going to execute any of the content inside of here because I don't know what content lives inside of here. And so that's kind of the, the first trick that Python does is like it allows you to keep your code identical. However, you were adding those scripts before or, you know, today is like whether you're using React or using WordPress, somehow that script element is showing up into your document. The only change you have to do is add the type attribute of text slash Python. So again, that tells it to don't execute me, just leave me be. And then the second phase is that when your page loads, it's all done and everything's cooled off. That's when Python is like, okay, now it's my time to work. Let's go find all those scripts that didn't execute. Let's find where they are, you know, do a query selector for that script type text slash Python. And let's tell the main thread or tell the web worker to start executing these scripts. And so that's the first step of, of what it is. And again, like 
one of the requirements was with Python is that uh, it's not like a React project. It's not a Drupal project. It's just as low level as it can get. Um, we do have wrappers for different frameworks, but for the most part, it's just like add that attribute somehow, whatever way you would add an attribute to your existing code. And then Python will know how to query select it for that and continue. That's very cool. So effectively, like you said, the two steps of adding Partyton to my website is A, add your script, the Partyton script tag, and B, modify the script tag of all the third-party scripts that are di- directly embedded in my web page in the HTML, add the type text slash Partytown on their script tags. That's it. Yep. And actually, and the other step was to make sure that the library files are there because there are there is a directory of tilde party town directory that needs to have. Um, and because we're using service workers, a service work requirement is that it needs to be on the same origin. So you can't use party town through like a CDN. It needs to be those files need to be on your same origin um, hmm. is one thing it needs to do. But yeah, that's that's basically the setup. And that allows you to also decide to pick and choose. Like, I only want, let's say you've got 10 scripts on your page. I only want to do just this one. Or you could even, you know, some people that are starting to experiment with Python, they'll say like, I'm just the about us page. And for just this script, why don't we add the attribute to see how it's working in production? Because you kind of pointed out earlier how, you know, production environments and uh, stage environments are usually two entirely different things when it comes to three-part scripts. And so one way to do that is to test on uh, A-B testing on on certain pages and things like that. And so that, again, it allows you to not have to have some sort of Webpack plugin that does all sorts of magic that just takes over control of all of your scripts because realistically, you're adding them your own way. And so with your own way, you can decide, I want to add this type attribute for this one particular conditional. As an aside, I would say that because of, you know, related to what you just said, that staging is effectively different than production is the reason that I think that staging environments are mostly useless. There's usually no real point in actually even having a staging environment. So not a permanent one, at least. You know, you might spin up a temporary staging environment to test something, but usually I I don't see any point in staging environments. Well, especially with third-party scripts. That's been the kind of the... The difficult, very difficult part with Python is someone says, does this work? You know, does a service X work with Python? It's like, well, first off, I have no idea. There's thousands and thousands of different scripts and each one of them can be doing billions of different things inside the code. Like there's no, you know, there's no easy answer to say yes or no, it's going to work in there. Um, and then the next thing is we can test on some QA website and the QA code might have like, you know, if QA do nothing. And then else, you know, oh, we're in production. Let's do all the, the actual magic. And so there's, it's almost every script has this, has somewhere some conditional of it, like if localhost do nothing. And so that's the other really hard part is like, you don't, you can't really test your three-part scripts unless it's in production. And I don't know that that's not a, you know, it's, it's not a Python problem. It's, you know, just kind of a, everybody's issue. Like this, it's an unsolved problem, I think, when it comes to third-party scripts. Like my previous, uh, R&D manager, the, the VP of R&D at Wix said, you know, you've got to be brave about those things, you know, <laughs> have guts, you know, deploy testing production. Yeah. <laughs> you just need well, you, to make... You kind of have no option. <laughs> yeah, you just need to make sure that you have... Yeah, yeah, you just need to make sure that you can do, that you have good monitoring and the ability to roll back uh, yeah. really quickly and effectively and testing production. Yeah, and it's not, you know, and I'll fully admit, you know, I'm a web developer too, I'll fully admit that like it's not the best idea to just throw something on the about us page and cross your fingers. But again, like 
what are your alternatives? Because the third party, you know, Google Analytics doesn't actually run any of this production code unless it's in production. So, Which brings me to another question. So as I mentioned before, you have a Google Tag Manager as this kind of third party script manager, as it were, uh, effectively Google yeah. Tag Manager, which means, means that it's loaded directly by the script tag in the HTML, but it then loads additional scripts itself. Mm-hmm. Does Google Tag Manager work with Party Town? And if it does, does the do the scripts that it load loads automatically run within that web worker? Yeah, that certainly was a is a scenario that is an issue where because Python was Python runs the Google Tag Manager in a web worker, any additional scripts that, that 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 script adds continues to stay inside the web worker. But there might be a case where a certain script should never run inside a web worker. It needs to run inside the main thread. And so that's the challenge today is that Python will, by default, continue to run everything inside of the web worker. But there is an escape hatch, I think, in our config. I'm looking at the site right now where you can yeah, load scripts on main thread. And that config was added fairly recently for this scenario of like the default is basically run, run these 10 Google Tag Manager scripts that the marketing team added. But this one particular one, you know, whatever.com, we want that one to run in the main thread. And so that that uh, config allows that to happen. Why would you want to run specific scripts in the main thread? I don't know. There, There's plenty of scenarios where something just doesn't, will will never work inside of a web worker. Certain, well, even Canvas, Canvas will work inside of a web worker um, because it still can communicate. But there's plenty of uh, certain scenarios that, that don't work. Like I think video buffering is one that's been an issue in the past. Uh, usually, if they can start a video, it can play it. Everything works fine. But if the if it's buffering constantly between the two, it'll work, but it's not very performant. But again, like it, it's it's hard to say like the one true answer of like why you'd want to run something in the main thread. The other probably the most common reason would be that there's some bug inside of Python that didn't allow some a, a special API to work as mm. it was supposed to. So and that's basically, kind of, again, it's kind of escape hatch. Yeah. So okay. Cool. So yeah, so like you said, it's an escape hatch. So if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I'm using Party Town and and script X out of that million third party scripts that exist in the world does doesn't seem to work correctly, you know, you might decide to look at it or not, but while you are, they at least have a, an escape hatch for the interim. Yeah. And and yeah, that's that's really been the like the big goal with Python is that it's not like recreating the DOM. So you got like, so think of um, JS DOM, which is what a Node.js project, because Node.js is in the browser. You know, it's just a JavaScript runtime. And so there's a project out there called JS DOM, which, you know, plenty of us use um, in a Node environment to recreate the DOM. Well, that's about two megabytes of JavaScript, all common JS, you know, like, and so it, if I wanted to recreate the DOM and run that inside of there, I'd have a two megabyte file inside of your browsers, which completely defeats the purpose of what we were trying to do with uh, trying to speed up your scripts by having less scripts. And so so instead, the big trick is that Partytown is essentially saying, these are all the APIs that I see around the main thread. Let's just kind of make proxies for them onto the uh, on the mm-hmm. web worker. And so it, it kind of just quickly blows through, looks through all the different prototypes. It's like, oh, these are these are things. Right. And then it forwards those things onto the web worker. And so then when the web worker proxy gets hit by that, that DOM API, it's like, oh, yeah, I saw so this is on the main thread. Let's go get the information from the main thread. And so, so effectively, that, you've written some middleware that passes the messages back and forth. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, just a, a fancy proxy. Right. It's just because we don't want to recreate the entire DOM because we'll be forever chasing something's something's different. And the other cool one that is kind of that's fun to see work just organically is um 
certain features are on Chrome, but they're not in Firefox or Safari. And so because of this feature of it's like, well, we see what's what APRs are available on the main thread, and we just tell the web worker to recreate those, then the same type of polyfills or the same type of um, this feature isn't available on Safari, you know, whatever if statement that they have for that, you know, feature detection, um, it skips over it naturally. So like Safari can't do X, Chrome can, it, it knows how to avoid the two and do the same thing that would have done the main thread. And this scanning is done dynamically. That means that, you know, you look at the actual scripts that get loaded and figure out from the actual script text which APIs you need to effectively polyfill or simulate and which and, and only create those? That's the way that it works? No, it, it actually, on the initial startup is when it loops through the entire window uh, prototype of like what's on window. So it basically, no, it's, it scans through the, on startup, it scans through the, the prototypes of what's on the main thread. And really as kind of a, just a big string, it sends that over to the web worker, just like, hey, these are the things that exist. Recreate these proxies. So I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, why did you start Raygun? You know, I, I started Raygun. It was actually our 11th product that we built. So, you know, if you're a fellow software engineer thinking you want to build something and build a business, this was the 11th try, right? And we built it because way back when I was writing more code for customers, I used to instrument my code to send an email to myself when something went wrong. And it would let me kind of get in front of the issue before the customer complained. And so we built a, a whole product called Raygun for crash reporting initially. Uh, it expanded out into other areas, but it was really just building a full solution to what I'd been doing years earlier to try and build better software. I love that. Just scratching your own itch. It makes a ton of sense. And, and I do that too with some of the stuff that I'm doing, either with podcasting or programming. Yeah, absolutely. The The most awkward thing was when we actually instrumented some of those prior 11 products. And that's when we realized that about 1% of users will ever actually report an issue. And you go, oh, we might have been a lot more successful earlier if we'd known that. <laughs> so that's kind of the whole value prop of Raygun. Yep, absolutely. And it, it makes sense just to put it in there. So folks, if you're looking to try something like this, that will tell you what your problems are, go check out raygun.com and get a free trial. Ah, so it, it doesn't scan the scripts, it scans your browser effectively. Right. It, like oh, the, cool. the browser that that user is using at that time. Could be Firefox, could be, you know, mobile Safari, whatever the whatever it's using, it's going to tell the web worker, you're like, redo this, the same API. And you do the kind of uh, recursive descent from the window yeah. object, something like that? Yeah, and that's that's usually where a lot of the fixes have to happen. If there's, for some re crazy special reason, something didn't get polyfilled correctly, that's where it takes time to look into. It's like, well, well, why didn't this work? And so if you look at our site, there's quite a few platform tests of just like anything and everything that the platform should do. It should it should work identically. And so, um, so the idea being that if we make sure that every single DOM works, really not like recreate how it works, but just like information flows exactly how it's supposed to, then if we can recreate exactly how the DOM is supposed to work in WebWorker, then all of the scripts should work. And so there's usually something, one or two things that didn't flow through correctly. And that's where the that's where the bugs lie, is trying to figure out why the proxy didn't do what it was supposed to do. And mm -hmm. so, so again, those tests, and we got all sorts of playwright tests that are trying to recreate. You know, if you set href, it's supposed to do this. You know, so let's, we know what it's supposed to do uh, on the main thread. Absolutely same thing should happen in the WebWorker. And that's what all those tests are. So now let's get to your magic. Because I get, I get how you uh, create those proxy objects inside the worker that represent the actual DOM, 
by scanning the DOM and then sending the information of the DOM shape into the worker and creating proxy objects based on that. And then, you know, access is made to that, to those proxy objects, either method calls or property access, whatever. But if it was just a naive implementation, that would result in you needing to send an asynchronous message to that main, to the main thread to do the work or to get the information or set the information. And that would have been great if all the third-party scripts would have used a wait on all the property accesses and method access and whatever. But they don't because they assume that they're running in the main thread and, they, and everything is synchronous. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so that was the next big challenge. And so there's been, you know, there's every once in a while I get criticism of just like, well, isn't it still the doing the exact same amount of work? Like, what's the big deal? Now you just have this overhead of, of posting messages back and forth. Like, But the big difference is that all of that logic, first off, all the memory usage, all the logic, all the script is running to a different thread. So there's a big benefit there. there none of that's fighting for your, the main thread or the, yeah, the main thread. The other thing is that all that logic is executing just scoped inside of that web worker. It's not like every single line that it executes, it has to go to the main thread. It stays pretty much within that web worker most of the time. And then occasionally it needs to get information uh, synchronously. And that's where it then occasionally goes to the main thread. And I say occasionally, you're still going to see, you know, a lot of uh, network requests of what's going on. And so, all right, so here's the here's the big trick. The big magic that, that happens is that in a web worker, we need to access, no matter what we do, is going to have to be a, an asynchronous request to a different thread. There's nothing we can do about that. And so really there's two ways that we can do that. And that's through one, through Atomics. And we can talk about that later. And the and I would say the Atomics is the correct way. And then the other way is, I'll label more as a trick, is the service worker uh, synchronous XHR request that we use. And so a synchronous XHR request, um, if you remember from the olden days, is that that was just you never use that. You should never use synchronous XHR requests because that's going to lock up your user's uh, browser. It's being deprecated, if not already removed from the main from the main APIs. Highly never use that type of API that you would see all over the place. And for good reason, because uh, when people did use synchronous XHR requests, let's say that you clicked a button and then it needs to synchronously uh, request information and come back, everything would lock up during that time. And so then that's where you know we were all trained, like, well, you should use asynchronous ways to get information so that you can have a little spinning loader while you're downloading the data. And yes, I believe that's being uh, deprecated from the main thread. So then when you hear about that being used for Partown, uh, that's usually the first response is like, wait, you're not supposed to use synchronous XHR requests. Well, that's different for the web worker because a web worker is pretty much largely based on having synchronous requests and being able to freeze up that, that thread. So the biggest example would be import scripts uh, function, the global function that it has. And that is widely, widely used in almost any web worker to uh, synchronously load different, you know, like CDN information, uh, especially if you think of something like StackBlitz or Cloud, uh, uh, was it Code Sandbox, things like that. They all rely on the use of how import scripts work synchronously. And so that is not something that's going to be deprecated. And the fact that a web worker is able to pause execution while something is happening. And so that's kind of the big trick is like, well, that's the that's one way that we can make the web worker stop for a moment and get something synchronously. And so what we're doing is that when you when we access document that title or something accesses document that title, right, we create this this magic proxy called uh, document and on it, it has this property called title. Um, we don't know what it does. And I'm, I'm thinking as a web worker here, as I have no clue what document that title is. It's just some proxy that I'm going to call. Inside of that proxy that we call, it then does this uh, synchronous XHR request uh, to Proxytown URL, 
which is a scoped URL that doesn't actually hit the network. And which is, if you look at any site that's got Python running it, you will see a bunch of network requests for Proxytown. That's kind of misleading because they're not actually proxy or network requests. They're not hitting the real network. It looks like they are through Chrome DevTools, but they're not. And so I wish they weren't there because they are being intercepted. They are being you know just handled locally within the browser. But with that request, we then have the service worker is able to basically convert this synchronous request into an asynchronous one. So the service worker has an onfetch method and the onfetch method then goes like, okay, you want to get document.title, let's post it to the main thread, ask document title, main thread finally gets back to me, you know, a millisecond later, and then responds to that initial request that the web worker had. So then by the time the web worker executes, it might have been one millisecond, but according to the, the web worker, it was a synchronous and it happened immediately. I don't know if that was way too much or... No, that, that's, that's great. I, th- I think, you know, a lot, like I mentioned before, a lot of web developers, people working the front end, don't really have experience with threads. You know, if you were talking to Java developers, for example, you know, threads would be obvious. Everything is threads. And the whole idea when you're working with threads is that you block threads because, and that's how threads are usually used. You know, not the main thread, not the UI thread, but the various other threads that you have. You know, you need them to do something. They need some information. They block until that information is received. And once it's there, they can continue because the main thread is still there to continue processing user inputs. And and effectively, that's the model that you get with web workers. By offloading computation, it could be a lengthy computation that would block the main thread, or it could be, like you said, in a, a synchronous XHR that would block the main thread. So effectively, what you're saying is that you've used synchronous XHR coupled with your custom service worker to implement a blocking API on top of web workers. So the web workers are blocked. The main thread obviously is not. That still works with post messages between the service worker and the main thread. But until the response arrives, that web worker is blocked. And consequently, the third-party scripts which expect things to be synchronous, they are. It, it, they just potentially take a long time to respond. But what do you care? Yeah. And that's where Python is really ideal for third-party scripts that are largely asynchronous. You know, when, you know, a button is clicked, it then kind of batches up this uh, button was clicked, uh, is at this location. We've got enough information. Let's, uh, you know, send a fetch over to the the main service that this button was clicked. And so that's kind of the ideal, um, like, you know, Google Analytics is a a great example of this, where it's kind of just a background task that can be Mm -hmm. asynchronous. It's not like a a big UI blocking... um, application, right? You don't want to run, uh, that's asked a lot too, is like, if Python's so great, why don't I run my application? It's like, well, that's the opposite of what you want to do. Because we're just trying to move off all of these, you know, bloated scripts to slowly go into somewhere else. And they can go slower, right? Like, that's fine. You know, that also scares people. It's like, well, now now they're going to execute a little bit slower. It's like, yeah, but that's that's fine, because they're already just listening for events and then slowly posting to their service. And when I say so, slowly, it's like, you know, two, three milliseconds slower than what it would have been if it was in the main thread. And so that also kind of speaks to is like all that weight that you were waiting on before is now not messing up the main thread. And so now when you click, you have free resources to do everything inside of your application, your React, Angular application, and the, the web worker code can, can slowly go just a touch slower, which is fine, in my opinion, um, for those scripts. I have to ask, 
where did this idea come from? I mean, it's it to me, it borders on genius. I mean, the concept of taking, of implementing a synchronous DOM inside a web worker and, and creating synchronicity using XA, blocking XHR to a service worker. What can I say? I, I, you know, I would never have thought of that. Like where, where, you know, how did this come about? Yeah, no, it definitely came out of like a necessity of, you know, so we're also building quick, which is a framework, kind of a next generation framework that allows us to be extremely, extremely fast by not executing JavaScript and lazily prefetching code on demand and things like that. So anyways, without going into further detail about quick is that we basically came to the realization is like we can make quick, you know, the fastest framework in the entire world. But no matter what we do, we still have these third party scripts. And so at Builder, you know, we have a lot of customers that are, are certain to use quick and certain to use um, and they use Builder quite a bit, use Builder for their applications. And the same thing comes down to is like a lot of them are e-commerce customers and they get their site running fast, but they still have the same problem. And so quick, I kind of feel uh, only solves half the problem of having bloated, you know, your own bloated JavaScript application. Um, and so we kind of solved that problem. I'm just like, you can you can make your application a lot faster now. But the reality is you're still going to add three megabytes of someone else's script on your main thread. It's still going to fight the, the problem. So that's where it kind of came down to is like, all right, quick solving half the problem. We solve this other problem. What are the possible ways that we could speed this up? And that's where, you know, you kind of listed all the requirements. Like, well, we can't change the code. It's on someone else's server, so we can't, you know, modify that. We can't tell people to not include it because, again, back to the business decisions, like, you you need this data. And so it just slowly came down to, uh, well, web worker. Web worker is the perfect answer. Why don't we use that? And then that's like, well, this is why we don't can't use it. It's because it, it needs to document that title synchronously. And so that's where it, it just kind of kept going down this path of just like, well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Can we do this? And so we eventually get to like, okay, the, the real problem of all this is synchronous access to the DOM from a web worker. How do we solve that? And so the two ways I could think of were Atomics and uh, synchronous XHR. So what are Atomics? So Atomics is fairly new to JavaScript. And I'm not a Java developer, Python developer, so I can't speak too smart about Atomics. So maybe someone else here can. But it's fairly new to uh, the JavaScript world where you're able to basically lock a thread um, such as the web worker and then communicate with the main thread and then unlock it. And so we we actually do employ this. There is a build and or there is a it's already working today. Actually, the Python site itself is using Atomics to communicate. And so and it's actually 10 times faster. It's a smaller build. Nothing but but great things to be said about Atomics. And I also think it's you know the correct way. You know, like what you were saying earlier, Dan, of just like that's, you know, how you would program something with, with multi, multiple threads. That said, so how come we don't use it? How come it's not the default? It actually is the default. I take that back. It's just that no one is able to use it for the most part because the reality is you need to enable some headers on the document, the response headers of the document to enable Atomics. And I have it documented of what those headers were. I forget what they are now. But these headers essentially say like, hey, you're only allowed to run certain scripts, images, everything on the main, or you're only allowed to run them from these domains. Anything else from a different domain is not going to work. And so on your private blog, on your own, you know, tiny website, that might be fairly feasible. You know, the Python site is a good example of that. It really doesn't have much going on for it. It doesn't have CDN images. It just has Google uh, Analytics, which we have hooked up correctly. But the reality is if uh, a, a traditional website, you know, it's a normal e-commerce site, if you enable Atomics, you're pretty much going to have everything broken. You have all your images broken. You have all your scripts not loading. And that's because the Spectre 
I think, vulnerability that was out a couple of years ago. It kind of all comes mm-hmm. back to that. Dan, do you know more about the Spectre vulnerability at all? Yeah, so Spectre, so Spectre kind of killed the shared array buffer. The, the whole concept of Atomics yeah. is that you have shared memory that multiple threads can access simultaneously. You know, one of the key limitations when you compare web workers in JavaScript to the threads that you have in, in Java or in C++ or, you know, environments like those is that in those environments, all the threads run in, in the same memory space. So they have direct access to the same objects, the same arrays with the same structures and whatnot. In JavaScript with workers, each worker has its own memory space. You can send stuff from one worker to the other asynchronously via post mechanism, but you can't have like two workers or the the main thread and a worker access, let's say, the same array simultaneously. And and there was an attempt to enable that. So there was so they introduced as part of the standard this thing called shared array buffer, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah that's that's the name where you can basically create this kind of an array, send it to that worker, and once that worker has it, then that specific uh, block of memory can be accessed simultaneously from, both, from let's say, two workers or the main thread and a worker, and it enables much more efficient exchange of information between the two when you need that sort of a thing. But, but like you said, it, and when you have that sort of thing, then you need to synchronize access to it. So, you, you know, you want to be careful of, let's say, not having two workers write to the same uh, place in the array simultaneously. And you create all sorts of race conditions and stuff like that. So they created Atomics as a means to synchronize access to that shared array. And again, those would be really familiar to anybody coming from a threaded programming language like uh, Java. But like you said, it turned out that there's a problem that Spectre basically enabled... Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact details. Timing attacks. Yeah, timing attacks. Basically would uh, be able to sniff out... I probably need to do a quick check to, to re- be reminded again, but it basically leveraged shared arrays to overcome browser security models. So the quick solution that they had was to basically rip out this entire functionality out of out of the out of the browsers. So effectively, they added APIs into the browsers, but quickly retracted everything before anybody could really get familiar with them because of these security vulnerabilities. And now they're trying to kind of introduce them back in a sort of a safe way. I'll do a quick check about exactly what the spect- what Spectre actually did exactly. But you can keep on going. So basically, you're saying that. If you do have access to Atomics, you use Atomics, but generally you don't, so you don't use Atomics. Yeah. So the default really is, is there's a there's a global variable on window, I think it's a cross-isolated origin or something like that. That's when that's true, means that Atomics will work. And to make that true is that the document has to have the response headers of saying that like I should find what the titles are, but they're they're basically don't allow any other scripts to run except the ones that are on this domain, which is a good thing, right? Because that's that's like that's mm-hmm. kind of their, I guess, their workaround to like this security vulnerability. And so, so for my own blog and for the Partown doc site, that works just fine. But if you're Amazon.com, you're not going to enable that because all of your scripts and images will stop working. 
And so that's the problem right now. So again, like I kind of think that Atomics was the Atomics and Straight Array Buffer were the correct answer. And I wish that was the 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 one that worked for everybody. But the reality is like it, it then goes to the fallback of the service worker way, which is pretty much what everyone's using now with when you use Python. Cool. So my next question is, because it sounds like, yeah, you just, what, NPM install Party Town, or can you load it from CDN? No, you can't. That's okay. one that, because it's a service worker, a service worker has to run on your domain. Okay. Um, so that was, and that's that's all documented on the site. But there's uh, there are integrations that make it easier to run in like an Astro and uh, Beautify and well, React. You see all of them. Most of the frameworks mm-hmm. have some sort of integration, but those are all just wrapper components to just add the, uh, copy those files to the correct directory and to add the attribute that you want to add. A question right. about that. Uh, so you said, so given... Uh, I think we've discussed it in the past, but it's actually also worthwhile bringing it up here in the podcast. You know, a lot of websites these days have their own service worker. And now you're saying that you need to have the party town running within that website in the, in the primary domain needs to have a service worker. So don't, doesn't that create a conflict between the service workers or something like that? Yeah, great question. And so that does another requirement. It's like we can't take over their the user's service worker, or I guess the the websites, and so that's why all of the library files you see they're, they're under tilde slash Python. Which, if you have a directory called tilde slash Python, I apologize that we're taking over that that directory. But that part that directory basically is like anything any request that happens inside of this scoped directory are the ones that this service worker will handle. Everything else it has nothing to do with, and so this continues to allow your traditional service workers. All your requests, they are completely oblivious that there is such a thing as a Python service worker. But if you have an iframe inside of the, that's uh, being executed from within tilde slash Python and makes a request, that's the one that would get intercepted. And so that's where the service worker um, scripts are being intercepted from that request. Speaking about iframes, if I have like banner ads on the website, which usually are iframes that use usually iframes to to embed the, the ad, is does Party Town is is it able to mitigate that as well, or or what happens in that context? Yes, I'm trying to remember uh, how that works. Actually, iframes is about ninety percent of the problem when it comes to the runtime, like trying to get those to work, because each one has a has its very own window. Um, each one has to communicate with each other with uh, post message and stuff, and so getting that to, to all work was quite a challenge. Um, but in general, yes, they're able to. Uh, you can add scripts like like I think the Twitter embed was one of the hardest ones. It's got for a tweet that's however many characters, right? It's uh, like three megabytes of of code, and I think it's like four or five different iframes that are added for a embedded tweet. Uh, don't believe me? Look at it. It's it's crazy that that's what's required to embed a what however many character tweet. But it, nonetheless, that's that's how it works. And so Python is able to continue to execute those inside of a web worker doing that. By the way, that's something that I have to bring up. I mean, with all due respect to Party Town, at the end of the day, if you, all you want to do is embed the, the, the text of a specific tweet, just copy yeah. the tweet. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> and I think there's, yeah. there's plenty of projects out there that do allow you to just, it just turns it into the, the HTML and CSS. I've seen a couple, you know, like Webpack plugins and stuff that are able to just convert or even Markdown plugins convert it into a normal HTML and CSS, which is such a better idea than tracking all the other stuff. Another terrible example, by the way, is YouTube. Embedded YouTube videos, yeah. they're like it's a half a megabyte compressed 
JavaScript that gets downloaded whether or not you actually play, press the play on the video. I know that Paul Irish from Google actually created this kind of uh, proxy for the YouTube uh, video player that only downloads it when you actually start interacting with it, something like that, just because of that of that issue, which seems yeah. kind of funny since, you know, YouTube belongs to Google. You might have thought that maybe they would have sold it themselves, but, you know, they didn't, so Paul did. Yeah, a lot of those... I mean, because I've gotten a lot of the bugs that I come across, it comes down to me like deminifying code, you know, using prettier on the source code and, and kind of stepping through like, what the heck is this stuff doing? And it's amazing <laughs> the stuff that I've seen inside of these scripts. And the biggest violator that I've, that I've seen quite often is that they'll have a set interval somewhere, you know, every 100 milliseconds, do a scan of every single DOM element and read what the text is and keep doing that over and over again. And there's like no way for us to ever know that that was happening. You know, there, there's there's no way to know that this this is what all your scripts are doing anyways. And so that's also kind of what Python, I don't think I have it documented enough on the site, but like you're able to kind of um, see every interaction that's happening. You're able to say like any, you know, let's say you want to block anyone from reading document.cookie because you're going through your proxy, because they, they are sitting inside of the web worker, they're not inside of the, the main thread, and they have to go through your code. That's where you can say, like, hey, if you're accessing document.cookie, let's just respond with an empty string. You know, according to their code, it's like, oh, cool, it's just an empty string. But you're able to kind of, like, sandbox that. And the same thing is, like, if you want to monitor uh, what set interval is doing or you want to see, like, all the access that's happening, you can console log them, you can prevent them, and do anything that you want. And, and it is pretty amazing it's no wonder why the more scripts you add, the slower your site becomes when you see kind of what they're doing internally. Like, there's a lot going on that. So, so you can, script. so you could, for example, or maybe you actually do uh, slow down that interval, even though they're doing it after every 100 milliseconds. You slow it down to every 10 seconds, or, or something you like could. that. Yeah, you absolutely could. I mean, that's that's one thing that we that it does do as an optimization is that setters are actually all batched. So let's say that you do get attribute whatever attribute. And that's going to be synchronous. Like we need to get that information. So that has to go there. It comes back. And then we've got a hundred lines of uh, setting style code, right? We've got set the red color, you know, set background, whatever set. They're all sets, right? Uh, set attribute. Like that doesn't need to be blocking because it, it hasn't actually, you know, even if it's the main thread, it's not really kind of blocking yet because nothing's been applied. And so um, it can do all that. And then the moment that it hits a getter is when it just says, oh, I have to be blocking now. So now let's send all those 100 setters that we that we applied and the getter on one batch. And so that actually helped out the performance quite a bit of batching all the setters together. Unless they thrash the DOM, which which is a problem in the main thread yeah. as well. By the way, for those who don't know what thrashing the DOM means, it means that you're interleaving getters and setters, which forces the browser to apply every setter immediately in order to return the correct value for the for the upcoming getter. And you really want to avoid doing that. Yeah, and they, they absolutely do all sorts of thrashing there. And that's also where, where I say, like, even if one's doing thrashing, that's bad. If they're all doing it, that's why performance is horrible. It's because they're all kind of doing their own thing. They don't care about what the other ones are doing. They don't know what the other ones are doing. And so that is one optimization for good or bad. I think for good, what Python does is that those interactions are within a request animation frame. So it does kind of throttle them. It does put them into a nice flow so it doesn't do the layout thrashing. And so again, like running that script in a web worker is going to be a little bit slower, but also is that such a bad thing? You know, like we are slowing down these scripts from thrashing the down. We are uh, slowing them down from, you know, destroying your performance. 
So, and what do you do with event handlers? I know that obviously third-party scripts register to various event handlers. You gave examples of uh, button clicks, but it could also be various window events. So what you, when they register, you kind of create your own uh, stub on the main thread and then post that event information back to the worker? What do you actually do? Yep. So let's say we had an on-click on window. That got registered inside of a web worker. So it's a fake window. There's no such thing as an on-click there. So what we really do is just create this ID of like, hey, ID, you know, function one was called. And then it goes over to the main thread and creates the real on-click handler. And it says like, but all it does is say like, uh, function one was called by the user, right? And so then it just kind of sends it back to the, to the worker thread. It's like function one was called. And then the worker's like, oh yeah, I know what, that's supposed to, what code that's supposed to execute. And so that's kind of how it does. Is it just kind of has an ID map of, of the two worlds. But you do need to serialize the entire event object in that case. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so like even a, a DOM element is just kind of serialized into IDs where we're able to look up the ID again. So like we're not trying, we're not, we don't serialize like the text content and HTML and like none of that stuff gets passed over. As I just said that like the on-click of ID or button five was clicked, you know, and so it just sends that information uh, back and forth. And so like when the main thread's like, oh, or when the web worker is just like, well, what's the text content of button? That's when the, it's another request back to it. So I have a suggestion for you. Maybe you've already implemented it. If uh, the third party scripts ask to register to the unload event, register it instead to the page hide event or something like that or visibility hidden. Mm-hmm. Because unload gets in the way of the BF cache, which is an entire discussion in and in and of its own. But by like switching it over, you probably won't lose any functionality, and you let the website use the BF cache for faster reloading. So that's something you should look at as well. Suggestion: BF cache. What's what's that? BF cache is a relatively new feature in Chrome. Turns out it's been a while in Safari. It's just called BF cache from back forward cache. It means that when you navigate away from a website, the browser actually, if it can, keeps like a snapshot of the memory of that uh, website. And then if you come back, instead of reloading the website, it just takes that memory snapshot and resumes from there. So it's as if you never left the website. So it kind of, loads instant instantly after a back. So let's say you click the link in a website, you went somewhere, and then you decide, okay, I, I want to go back to where I was. You click the back button. Instead of reloading that original website, you instantly are there. It's as if you never left. And that that's enabled in, in Safari, in Chrome these days. And it's really a speed in, a speeded up a lot of web navigation. And you kind of get it for free. The users don't even know that it's happening. The, the interesting thing, though, is that certain things prevent BF cache from working. And one of those things is an unload event handler. So Google actually has a interesting. best practice recommendation of not using the unload event handler. Unfortunately, some third-party scripts still do. So even if you don't, the third-party scripts may and they would actually get in the way of the BF cache and prevent you from using BF cache. By the way, there's even in the DevTools, you can actually even ask DevTools to check whether your web your website is or isn't compatible with BF cache. And if it isn't, it will tell you why. And that reason might be because you're using unload, the unload event handler. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I won't hold it 
pass any of those scripts. So they they pretty much you know they have to code to the lowest common denominator. So they they always mm-hmm. you know code to like IE eight. You know like yeah. So so I know for a fact that the Facebook Pixel FB event or whatever it's called was using it. I think Facebook might have actually fixed that. But if they were using it, I'm sure others have been are using it as well. Yeah. yeah. Now we're kind of getting toward the end of our scheduled time, and I wanted to ask: Is anybody using this to speed up their sites? Right? Is this out in the wild somewhere where somebody's? We are looking at it. Next Insurance is in the process of integrating it. It's certainly interesting because if you look at the npm downloads, it does very very well. I think it's in the hundreds of thousands weekly. But it's hard to get websites to say that they're using it. And I guess that's, it makes sense. Everyone has their, their private data, private repos. This is for business decisions. It's not really a, the usage of it. It really isn't an open source thing. You know, using it is open source, but you know, telling people that you're using it isn't. And so I've actually struggled to get any uh, actual data from um, a lot of website users out there to say like, yes, we've enabled it. And yes, our conversion rates went up or no, it made no difference at all. So that's one thing I'd love to ask the community is like uh, getting help there is, is, yeah, it looks great on Lighthouse scores. It, it shows that it's uh, faster. Lighthouse says everything's great. But I'd love to get some real data of saying, like, our conversion went up 5%, you know, like, be, since we enabled it, you know, something went a lot faster. Um, that's the hard part to get it, like, I guess, other people to uh, come forward with. So I have okay. another suggestion for you in this context. There's this open source project called the Webalizer, yeah. which identifies which technologies are used in a web page. So... Uh, you can go into that. It's an open source project and make, make sure that Webalizer identifies Party Town as a technology being used yeah. in a page. The benefit of that is that the HTTP archive actually uses Webalizer to uh, analyze the technology and identify which technologies are being used in web pages that are in its database. So once you do, you've done that, you will be able to actually run queries on the HTTP archive to see which websites are actually using uh, PartyTown and see their performance relative to websites in general. Now, obviously, and and maybe even look at their history, like how their performance has changed over time. Yeah, no, that's that's an amazing idea. And that's, that's really, you know, people ask me again, like how... How much faster will my site get? I'm like, I, 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 okay, I don't have that data. I, uh, I can tell you that Lighthouse will go faster. But that's also kind of why we label it as beta. It's like we, we're, we don't have the data that, that proves this is, makes a massive, massive, massive difference. Yeah, you'll so. be able to actually segment the Google Crux data based on whether or not Party Town is used in the site or not. So I think that would be an interesting type of analysis to run. Yeah. Uh, you should probably contact Rick, Rick Viscomi from Google about that. I'm, I'm, I think he'll be happy, happy to help you with that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. One, yeah. one and, other way of asking this is, I guess, what kinds of changes have you seen in Lighthouse scores? Because I'm assuming you've tested this yeah. your own stuff. Yeah, I think on a site that, that has quite a few third-party scripts, you see, you know, 40, 50 is pretty common uh, oh, wow. improvement of Lighthouse score. It, but that's also, it's hard to say, well, it depends because like, yeah. do you have 30 scripts or do you have one script? And so when they have one script, it's like, oh, I made a one point difference, big deal. The Facebook you know, so pixel it, counts as 30 scripts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And so, and then also, what is that script doing? I, I'm only adding one three-bar script, but it could be a two megabyte, you know, full story or something like that. Yeah. Cool. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and 
in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right, let's go ahead and do picks because that's kind of where we're at as far as the time goes. Before we do that, Adam, if people want to check in with you, see what you're working on, you know, learn more about Builder or about Party Town, where, where do they go? Yeah, probably Twitter. Adam D. Bradley on Twitter is where I like to hang out. Um, usually somewhat quiet, but very responsive to DMs and any direct messages. I'm on there quite a bit. So, so yeah, feel free to contact me there. And then also on uh, both the GitHub for Party Town and Quick, and I guess in Discord for uh, Builder.io is where I'm actively chatting to. I also like to mention that, you know, we mentioned Builder.io and Quick several times in this podcast. We've actually had both Steve and uh, Mishko from Builder to talk about Builder.io and to talk about Quick. And in fact, the discussion about Quick was so great that we're actually going to have Mishko again to talk about even more about Quick. <laughs> so, you know, people can che- check our back episodes to find that excellent content. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's do our picks. Steve, do you want to start us off with picks? Uh, Chuck, I think that I asked to go oh, first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you did. Yeah. Dan, do you want to start us off with picks? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my first pick will actually be the reason why I'm a bit pressed for time is that right now the W3C TPAC conference or virtual conference is ongoing. This is or unconference. This is where uh, various, the various working groups within the W3C, get, uh, the people get together to discuss how the web uh, platform is, evol- is evolving and uh, adding new APIs, addressing various issues with existing APIs. And in general, you know, uh, we're not talking about uh, specific frameworks. This is not about uh, Re- a React or Vue or an Angular. This is about the browser itself, the various protocol, uh, protocols that underlie the, brow- uh, the browser and so forth. I'm a participant in the web performance working group, and so it's really interesting discussions. I think that really anybody can listen into the conversations. So just look for W3C TPAC, that's T-P-A-C, and that's it. So it's ongoing right now, and I'm heading right back there after we're done. So that would be my first pick. Uh, my second pick is, as usual, the ongoing war in Ukraine. Even though it seems like the Ukrainians are making headway against the Russians, I'm not at all sure that this is going to shorten the war, unfortunately. And it does mean that the pain and suffering is still ongoing. So as usual, if there's anything you can do to help the Ukrainian people in any way whatsoever, please, please, please do. And those would be my picks for today. And Bye, everybody, and thank you, Adam, from coming on, for coming on our show and telling us about Party Town. Bye, everybody. Bye. Yeah. All right, Steve, what are your picks? One quick clarification from Dan's stuff. That was T-Pack and not 2-Pack for you rap fans. Anyway, moving on to the dad jokes of the week, an ant question. How do you tell a male ant apart from a female ant? They're all female. Otherwise, they'd be called uncle. Thank you. <laughs>
So what do you call it when you stab a milkshake with a straw? Shakespeare. Did it? It's a shake and you're spearing it. Anyway, sorry. I was ruined when I described them. And then finally, those of you Office Space fans might uh, really appreciate this one. I was confused when my printer started playing music until I realized that the paper was jamming. PC load letter for those of you who don't remember. Anyway, those are my picks. All right. Chuck's going um, over here. Oh my God, I'm so glad that's over. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Adam is laughing just so that you can't see. That's good stuff. No, he, I'm a huge fan of uh, dad jokes. No. All right. So I'm going to throw out a few picks here. I usually pick a, uh, a board game, and this week will be no exception. So I'm going to pick a game called Irish Gage. And if you've played, it's a train game. And so I played it with a bunch of my friends. And it's kind of a mix between like Ticket to Ride and Settlers of Catan. So you're, you're hand monopoly. Anyway, so what, what you wind up doing is you play the game and you're buying stock in railroads. And then you're building the railroads. So your turn, you can either auction off a stock you can put down up to three three points worth, I guess, of rail line. You can upgrade a city and or you can call for dividends. And if you call for dividends, then the railroads all pay out. So you generally want to call for dividends when it's going to be of highest advantage to you and not your not your opponents. Right. Because when you call for dividends, everybody who has stock and a railroad gets paid. So, you know, so there's a little bit of strategy in whether or not you bid on or pay for a uh, a stock. There's some strategy as far as how you put down the rails, because if you're the first one in the, the space, it costs you less. And in some spaces, you can't double up and you collect dividends according to the type and size of the city that your train runs through. And so anyway, the it it sounds more complicated than it is. The instructions are all on one sheet, actually, front and back. So that that's all it takes. You know, I've played some other games where they have like a manual on how to play it, basically. And so this one's uh, fairly simple that way. It's just a matter of figuring out what order and when and how that works. It has a weight of 2.36 on BoardGameGeek. Right. So it's definitely within the realm of kind of the casual gamer who just wants to play games with with a family. It's simple enough to where I think most of my teenagers could play it. I have a 13 year old. I think I think she'd be fine. I think my 11 year old could play it. My six year old. No. But anyway, there are two other games that are kind of follow ons to this game. I haven't played them yet and they get a little bit more complicated. So anyway, this plays three to five people. And yeah, it was it was really fun. This is definitely a game I want to go pay go buy. So what was the name of it? It's called Irish Gauge. I'll put a Irish link Gage. to Board Game Geek in the chat. But uh, anyway, I think it took us about an hour to play it. So yeah. Anyway, cool. so yeah. So those are those are my picks. And oh well, I was going to pick a few other things. So shameless self promotion. I am putting together a book club. So if you want to do developer books, I've been podcasting in programming space for like 14 years. And so I tend to know a lot of the people who have authored a lot of the books that you've probably wanted to read. And so I don't know if we're going to do like Clean Coders and get Bob Martin to show up or do one of Kent Beck's books or, but I've, I've met or know, you know, Michael Feathers or 
Martin Fowler. So so we'll probably line up some of these books and see what we can do. I think it'd be fun to do Gang of Four with a Gang of Four. I don't know how likely that is. We've had one or two of those guys on the shows too over the last several years. So anyway, I'm just going to put it out there that, uh, that that's probably what we're going to do. Uh, depending on the length of the book and the amount of content, you know, how easy we can get through it, we will either go one month or two months on the books. And I'm setting up a discourse forum so we can discuss it and then we'll have weekly calls. And so you can jump on the call or you can just watch it later. But that way I can invite, you know, four, five, six, eight, you know, however many people into the discussion at a time, you know, I'll facilitate it, share my insights if I feel like it and kind of work through it. But I'm hoping that I can get the authors on too. And so, you know, we can ask them questions or talk through some of the ideas or maybe, you know, spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes listening to them and then spend the rest of the time talking about what we got out of it. So anyway, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm looking at charging like 17 bucks a month to be part of it and just make that go. I do have another thing that I'm putting together. And this is one that I just keep getting asked. And generally, it's from people who want to kind of figure out what the next step is in their career. They're not sure what to learn. They're not sure, you know, how to stay current on things. They feel like maybe they're stagnating a little bit with their skills at work because, you know, work adopted view two and now view three's out. Or they're on an old version of React and haven't updated. Or their back end is a technology that isn't as widely used anymore. And so I'm putting together basically a how to how to stay current course that walks you through how to know what to keep up on, uh, how to prioritize things, where to get resources, how to approach learning from videos, podcasts, blog posts, books, you know, you name it courses so that, you know, you have the tools to go out and kind of upgrade your tech skills as they come along, right? And so then, you know, something comes out like, say, Party Town, then if it's on your radar and it's something that you should be picking up as kind of the next phase in your career or something that can make a difference where you're working right now, then you'd see it pop up, you'd go and check it out, you'd evaluate, yes, this is something I need to learn, and then you'd go get the resources together to learn it. And so uh, I'm putting that together as well. Um, it's going to be the first course on Top End Devs, topendevs.com slash courses. So you can go check both of those out. And then I postponed JavaScript Remote Conference. It's going to be in November now instead of October. I'm just trying to get things together so that I can get people on a mailing list and stuff like that and make sure that everybody has a solid experience with it. So anyway, those are the the other things that I'm going to pick. I just switched things back over to Active Campaign. I used it for a while. I didn't realize how many features were in it. But I'm getting coached by a friend of mine who uses it pretty heavily. And I've been pulling all of the information that we have back into that. And I really like it. It kind of functions as an, a mailing list system and a CRM. And so I'm just going to shout out about that just because it's 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 been an awesome tool. And I'm probably going to be putting together an email list of people who want to get notified, you know, when we're having a conference or a meetup or when we're looking for guests for the shows so that they know, hey, I ought to submit something in order to be a part of this. So anyway, that's what I've got this week. Adam, do you have some picks this week? Yeah, I was just looking at the NPM downloads of UVU, which is a testing uh, runner. And so I don't think it's really obscure anymore. Like uh, I started using it in the last two years. Uh, It's uh, basically kind of a replacement for Jest. And I'm a huge, huge fan of it. But again, like uh, now that I say that, I like I think quite a few other people are big fans of it either. So I don't think uh, it's it's too big of a 
crazy pick. But no, I've, I've, we've migrated a lot of our all of Quick and um, Python to use UVU oh, much, nice. much faster than Jest. Uh, really enjoy using it. And so basically anything by Luke Edwards, uh, you know, such as like Polka and Serve, the other H- Node HTTP server we also mm-hmm. use. So um, awesome, awesome developer. He makes some really lightweight, fast uh, products and so or soft open source uh, projects. So anything he creates, uh, use it. Um, and then I think the other one that we've been using quite a bit is Playwright, just kind of the um, our replacement for uh, Puppeteer, mainly, mainly because it's uh, more tailored to testing. And so we we use it widely for all of our tests in uh, both Paritown and and Quick. Yeah, in this neck of the like woods, Edwards, it's hard to lose. In this neck of the woods, UVU is Utah Valley University. <laughs> so, okay, I was like, they have a package. <laughs> yeah, of course, and it's for testing. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, use the testing center. Yes, Steve can hit do the rim shot there. Anyway, but yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up. But thanks for coming. This was awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun. Yeah, absolutely. I encourage people to go check it out. And until next time, folks, Max out. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.